The old pilot's plain tales. The baby killers. It was the 19th of January, 1915, and the people of the English town of Great Yarmouth and King's Lynn were woken to an eerie throbbing sound from above them. No one there had ever heard it before, this deep rumble of powerful engines in the sky slowly approaching in the darkness. People left their homes and looked up into the inky black sky, but nothing could be seen. The noise grew, and now alarmed at this strange roaring, they began to run, but nobody was sure which way would be safe. They didn't know if they were running towards danger or away. Then the blackness was cracked wide open by a bright flash, soon followed by the thunder of an explosion as bombs dropped on the defenceless people below. The full horror of aerial warfare had just been unleashed on the people of England, and when the smoke cleared, the first deaths revealed a 72-year-old lady, Martha Taylor, and a shoemaker, Samuel Smith. The carnage that was infesting the Western Front, a few hundred miles away across the English Channel, now arrived at the British capital, London, which came under attack from this terrible new weapon of bombardment, the Zeppelin. These massive craft, which had previously carried civilians on pleasure cruises, were now being deployed to kill them. Raids had already occurred on the continental city of Liège, Antwerp and Paris, but now the Germans turned their attention towards England. With German military forces trapped in the trenches of Belgium and France, it was Admiral Paul Benck who first proposed that the German Zeppelin force should attack Britain, a concept that was approved by Alfred von Tirpitz and agreed by the Kaiser. The commander of the Zeppelin Corps justified this targeting of a civilian population from the air with these chilling words. Nowadays, he said, there is no such animal as a non-combatant. Modern warfare is total warfare. The aim of the German High Command was clear. They wanted to break the morale of the people of Britain and force the government to abandon the war against Germany. For the first few months of 1915, Zeppelins would hit towns across the east. Southend, Ipswich and Bury St Edmunds were all attacked multiple times, but there were few signs of panic, no mass hysteria, and the spirit of the civilians so cruelly dragged into the war held. So the Zeppelins headed for London. There had been no air raids on the capital before. There had never been anything like this. Suddenly, blazing incendiaries were falling from the sky and setting light to houses. It was almost like science fiction. In one attack on London, in 20 minutes, a Zeppelin had dropped 3,000 pounds of bombs and 91 incendiaries that started 40 fires, gutted buildings and left seven people dead. 
Not a single shot was fired in retaliation. The first deaths happened in Cooper Road at the house of a man called Samuel Leggett, who had five children. Three-year-old Elsie died in her bed. From that day forward, the Zeppelins and the Germans responsible were dubbed the Baby Killers. Thousands of Londoners took to the streets to watch the attacks. Doris Cobbin remembered her father taking her outside, wrapped in a blanket, to see what he described as history being made. Her mother brought out the other children, and they gazed up in amazement at the huge machines as they flew sedately overhead. We were out there, she recalled. As far as I remember, it was cheerful, but probably the grown-ups were absolutely petrified. London was ablaze, buildings were ripped apart, and by the time the attack was over, 22 were dead, 87 had received horrific injuries, and the Zeppelins had escaped into the night completely unharmed. European cities had mounted a stronger defence than those in England. Early attacks on them by the German army airships showed their vulnerability to ground fire when the Z-6, flying below the cloud, was damaged by small arms fire, crashing during a forced landing near Bonn and being destroyed. Z-5 was also brought down by ground fire over the Eastern Front during the Battle of Tannenberg. Ground artillery was obviously effective and had some success, but all that was needed to negate the threat was for the airships to climb to a sufficient altitude, although this reduced the accuracy of their bombing missions considerably, with many attacks unable to hit even reasonably sized cities. Finally, the Flying Corps and naval pilots were sent aloft to combat these machines. It had been discovered that the ball ammunition of the small caliber 303 machine guns used by the fighters had little effect on the gas bags and something else would be needed. As it turned out, another three things would be added to the British pilot's ammunition to help. The Pomeroy, the Buckingham and the Brock bullets. Brock was a naval officer with a flair for invention. Indeed, he invented the anti-submarine Dover flare, a ship-fired illuminating flare which forced enemy submarines to dive into the array of nets and mines laid around the shipping lanes. His modification turned the standard 303 bullet into an incendiary round. Brock's bullet had a cuprock nickel envelope with a deep nose cavity into which the main composition was placed, with an air channel running through the centre. On top of this was the priming charge, which protruded through the envelope and was covered by orange varnish. The main composition was potassium chlorate, and the priming mix, potassium chlorate and mercury sulfocyanide. The Buckingham round was similarly named after its inventor, but was filled with yellow phosphorus and aluminium powder instead, which gave a clear smoke trail and was the original tracer round. It was New Zealander 
John Pomeroy, who saw that in order to ignite the hydrogen within the zeppelins, it needed to escape through large holes so it could mix with the atmospheric oxygen outside the gas envelopes. His round was an explosive mix of dynamite and shock-sensitive nitroglycerine. When fired, the dynamite within the hollow core would move to the rear of the tube, leaving the film of nitroglycerine at the nose, ready to ignite it when sudden deceleration occurred. Despite the sophistication of these new incendiary and explosive rounds, the first Zeppelin to be brought down by a fighter was through the use of bombs. The naval pilot, Reginald Alexander John Warnford, followed the LZ-37 from the coast near the French town of Ostend. He previously attacked the LZ-39 with his machine gun, but the airship climbed out of trouble. Now he was homing in on her sister ship in his Moraine Solnia Type L. Braving defensive machine gun fire, he succeeded in climbing above it, and then he dropped his six 20-pound Hales bombs, striking the vast Zeppelin and setting it alight. The airship crashed in flames into a convent school near Ghent in Belgium, killing all but one of the crew and two of the nuns. The surviving crew member was pitched out of the gondola he was in, onto a bed which cushioned his fall. The exploding airship threw Warnford's monoplane onto its back and stopped his engine, but he successfully force-landed behind enemy lines. After spending 35 minutes working on the engine, he managed to restart it, just as the Germans realised what was going on. He yelled at the approaching troops, Give my regards to the Kaiser! and took off, returning to base. For his bravery in attacking and downing the Zeppelin, Warford was awarded the Légion d'honneur and the Victoria Cross. But following a celebratory lunch with the French Army Commander-in-Chief, he flew a ferry flight, and when his aircraft's wing failed, it pitched both him and his journalist passenger out of their machine to their deaths. One of the main uses of the Zeppelin was for naval reconnaissance over the North Sea and the Baltic. During the war, almost 1,000 recce missions were flown, compared with only around 50 strategic bombing raids, and the German Navy had enough airships to have two machines patrolling almost constantly at any one time. However, the vulnerability of the Zeppelins to poor weather resulted in many losses. On one night alone, two crashed into the North Sea from a combination of high winds and engine problems. These Zeppelin missions prevented the Royal Navy from easily approaching the German coast or laying mines without being observed. The need to find a way to engage and remove the airship threat was given a great deal of consideration. As an interim measure, some of the Navy's great ships were fitted with a platform mounted on one of the main gun turrets from which a fighter could be launched. The first successful launch of a Sopwith Pup 
was performed in the summer of 1917, followed a couple of months later by the first engagement of a Zeppelin by Sub-Lieutenant Bernard Smart. Armed with a mix of the new Brock, Buckingham and Pomeroy ammunition, he described his encounter thus. I could see a man and an object unpleasantly like a machine gun on top of the envelope, and I now realised the time had come. I was now at 7,000 feet, and the Zeppelin a thousand feet below, at an angle of 45 degrees, and I was still heading straight for her stern. I pushed forward the control stick and dived. The speed indicator went with a rush up to 150 miles an hour, and I rammed down the machine gun's operating lever and held it there. The gun spat out, and the Zeppelin was now a mass of flames, and had dropped so that the nose was pointing to the sky at an angle of 45 degrees, whilst the flames were fast licking up towards the nose. An object was adrift from the forward end of the Zeppelin, which I first took to be some part of the fabric falling off, but on looking again, I discovered it to be a man descending in a parachute. He was the only one, and as he floated down, he and I seemed to be alone in space. I turned until my compass was in the opposite direction to that when I had been chasing the Zeppelin, and then looked back to have a last glance at the blaze. He never found his own ship, HMS Yarmouth, but luckily a destroyer had been attracted by the smoke, and he was able to ditch his aircraft beside it. The brave attack by Smart was the first time in history that an aircraft launched from a seagoing ship had been successful in air-to-air combat. He was promoted to flight lieutenant and awarded the Distinguished Service Order and the French Croix de Guerre, but in secret, to avoid alerting the Germans to the new British weapon, ship-borne fighters. Since the German airship commander, Lieutenant Bernard Dinter, and his crew of 18 had all perished, the Germans could only think that a British ship had scored a lucky cannon hit. The wedding of the warship to the fighter aircraft had occurred, and it would change naval combat forever. Out of interest, the L-23 he downed had its own remarkable place in history. A few months earlier, Dinter and his crew had performed the remarkable feat of capturing a Norwegian ship. Dropping a bomb off the bow of the Bark Royal, Dinter carefully piloted the airship onto the surface of the sea and sent a prize crew across to take possession of the Royal and its cargo of lumber. The world's first flat-top aircraft carrier was Her Majesty's ship Furious albeit she was a converted battlecruiser and not originally built for the purpose of flying aircraft off her decks. That honour would go to HMS Ark Royal. It was while still under construction that the Royal Navy foresaw the importance of naval aviation and that the aircraft would soon replace the dreadnought as a primary naval weapon. Her enormous 18-inch guns in the front turret were replaced with a landing deck, 
Although she was later changed by extending her flight deck, initially pilots had to land by swerving around her superstructure, which made every attempt a hit-or-miss affair. The first landing aboard the Furious, whilst underway, was achieved by Edwin Dunning in a Sopworth pup, another world record. His second attempt proved fatal when his engine faltered and he bounced off the deck and over the side. Others tried, but the success rate was so low that ditching alongside was the preferred method of returning to the ship. It was from Furious that the Tondern raid was mounted, an attack on the home of the Zeppelins in Denmark, then part of Germany. After a pause for bad weather, the raid took off in the early hours of the 19th of July 1918. The pilots had trained by practising bombing runs at the airfield at Turnhouse in Scotland, and the depleted force of six Sopwith camels, one having turned back and ditched with engine trouble, arrived over Tondern at 4.30 in the morning, taking the base completely by surprise. In front of the pilots were three enormous airship hangars called Tosca, Tobiah and Tony. Tosca was by far the largest, containing two airships, the L-54 and L-60. A German witness to the attack described it. While I was still half asleep, I seemed to hear the whir and whiz of a propeller. It was not the note of a Zeppelin at all. I jumped up and rushed to the window, from which I could get a view of the whole aerodrome. Suddenly a shadow passed over our house, a few yards above the roof. Absurdly low. A British airplane. The camels dove on their targets with three bombs hitting Tosca, detonating the gas bags of both airships, destroying them and the shed they sheltered in. The second wave of camels hit Tobias, setting alight a captive balloon contained inside. During the attack, Tondern's gunners woke up and began to defend their base, but the only damage they achieved was to shoot off an undercarriage wheel. The first wave, believing that they had insufficient fuel to return to the fleet, headed for Denmark and safely landed there. The remaining three coasted out, hoping to find friendly ships at sea. All but one successfully ditched and were rescued. Lieutenant Hewlett, the only British casualty of the raid, was never found and presumed drowned. During their brief but deadly dominance, German airships changed the face of war forever. In the process, killing more than 550 people and injuring over 1,300 all down the east side of Britain. The last ever attempt to bomb Britain by a Zeppelin was over the Norfolk coast on the 5th of August 1918. Three years earlier, when a Zeppelin had first appeared in the skies above Great Yarmouth, it was an invincible force, but now they were outclassed and swiftly dealt with. Plane Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. 
You can find out all about that at airlinepilotguy.com. Plain Tales is also a standalone podcast, and if you're listening to me now, then you'll have downloaded it independently. If you enjoy Plain Tales, it'd be great if you could leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. Many thanks.